Friends, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20, we are currently in a series called Five on Five, where we're looking at five lessons on the first five books of the Bible. So we are in week three in the book of Exodus. We're looking at the giving of the Ten Commandments. Now, uh, just a quick note on that. Uh, The Ten Commandments is a massive portion of Scripture. It's very important. Um, So we're actually going to cover it in two weeks. But even then, uh, just to give you a heads up, we are not diving into it. We can't do a full analysis of it. Uh, to be honest, the Ten Commandments deserves its own series, really. Um, and so we hope to get to that in the coming years. But today and next week in part one and part two, uh, our sermon is entitled A Lesson in God's Law. And we are just having an orientation to uh, the Ten Commandments and specifically today, the giving of the Ten Commandments to God's people. And so at this time, if you're able, I invite you to stand with me. Standing is an act of worship, because by it we read and receive God's word with reverence in our hearts. Hear now the reading of God's word from Exodus 20, reading verses 1 to 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow to them, bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. But the Lord will not hold, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. Pray with me once more, dear friends. Gracious Father, we're thankful for your word and specifically for Exodus 20. And I pray, Lord, that in the context and the framework of the gospel, that we could even receive your law, not as a burden, but as a blessing. And that you would help us to understand uh, your heart in the giving of this law And you're calling us to be obedient. And you're calling us to live a holy life as we live according to your ways and not our own nor that of the world. So be with us, Lord, now as we look at your word. Help us to receive it as food we eat, as nourishment to our souls, as instruction to our minds, Lord, and also as worship to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Imagine for a second that one day you woke up. And overnight, the world decided, while you were sleeping, to change 
all of the colors on the traffic lights in the world. Uh, the three new colors are now orange, blue, and purple. And on top of that, the three lights on the traffic lights are no longer horizontal or even vertical, but now they form a triangle. There's a light on top, there's a light on the bottom left, there's a light on the bottom right. In this new world, if you woke up and there was no explanation as to what the lights meant and what the order of the lights indicated, how long would it be before people were on the road and there was chaos and mayhem, before there were accidents? I think everybody driving on that road with this new change would be in total confusion. There'd be complete chaos. I mean, which light would indicate, which color would indicate that you go? Is it purple? Is it orange? Is it blue? I mean, even now we have red, yellow, and green, but it's debated. What does yellow mean? Does it mean speed up or does it mean slow down? If you saw a purple light and it was on the bottom left, is that telling you to slow down? Is it telling you to stop? Is it telling you to go? Without an orientation to what those lights represent, what's meant to facilitate you, uh, help order, uh, bring safety to the road, would actually cause more harm. It would cause more hurt. The lights, which are supposed to be beneficial, would actually prove otherwise. Now, I mention that because much in the same way, the Ten Commandments come to us. And without a proper understanding, without a proper context to them, the law itself is very misunderstood. You know, for a lot of people, when they think of the Ten Commandments, they think of a checklist of moral duties, of right and wrong, things you should be careful to do and not to do. In fact, even if you don't know what the Ten Commandments are, if you go out in the streets, most people will be able to cite at least the most basic formula of the Ten Commandments. Oh, the Ten Commandments, that's the thou shall and thou shall not. I don't know why it's the King James always, but thou shall and thou shall not, people assume. And so if that's all you know about the commandments, well, they seem a bit controlling. If all you have is a sense of duty and obligation to the law, it really becomes burdensome. It's not beautiful and a blessing the way God intended. And you know what? Let's be honest. If you're a Christian here today, you may know the Ten Commandments, but much in the same way, you, you probably view God's law uh, like everybody else. God's law is a set of moral codes that kind of directs our behavior. And the only difference is Christians are saying, oh, it's from God, so I'm willing to obey it. But remember, God doesn't just drop the Ten Commandments out of heaven to be a religious operating manual for the entire world. When God gives his commandments, he gives it to a specific people at a specific time in a specific circumstance. And without taking that into consideration, without understanding the context God gives his law, the law will be more harmful than helpful, and it will be more burdensome than a blessing. And so as we look at Exodus 20 this morning, we're really just going to focus on one verse. But that one verse is going to change everything. So here's our central proposition, the one point that you should walk away with. Who the lawgiver is must come before what the laws given are. Who the lawgiver is, that comes first. It comes before what the actual laws he gives are. You see, the Ten Commandments don't actually begin with the first commandment. The Ten Commandments actually begin with a prologue. And to skip or to ignore or to forget the prologue will lead to a disastrous view of the law. If you walk into a Sunday school children's classroom of any church in America, 
you will most likely find a poster of the Ten Commandments on the wall. And the chances, the probability is very high that under the Ten Commandments, the very first thing it'll say is verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. The very first thing that they know that children learn about the Ten Commandments is the first rule. And that's a problem because that means generation after generation, there are uh, children attending children's ministries who are implicitly learning that to God, these rules are very important. In fact, the rules seem to be more important than the relationship. And that becomes embedded in our minds. And Christianity then becomes more about uh, duties of following rules rather than a great delight in following a redeemer. And here's why this is a problem. If you don't first learn to soak and marinate in the prologue, you can't take one step into the Ten Commandments without drowning. Because God's laws aren't supposed to be understood apart from the prologue. So what is the prologue? Well, look at verses one and two. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is how the 10 commandments begin. Notice God doesn't start with you. He doesn't begin the 10 commandments with you must do this or you must not do that. He begins the commandments with I. Before he gives you a law to follow, he first tells you something about himself. And this changes everything. This changes everything. If you've ever worn a button-down shirt, much like I'm wearing this morning, maybe you've experienced this before. I experience it usually on Sunday mornings when I'm a bit tired and a bit rushed where you begin to button and everything is fitting perfectly. I mean, these days, Buttons fit a little snugly on me, but, but everything is fitting perfectly until you get to the end and you realize that the whole shirt is misaligned. And you begin to trace back, oh, did I skip? But you realize what happened was that very first initial button you misplaced. And so although every other button fit perfectly, made total sense coming down at the end, you realize, oh, something is askew, something is off. You need to get that first button right. In the same way, when it comes to God's law, God's Ten Commandments, you can't understand it without first getting that first button right. The Ten Commandments do not begin, you shall. No, the Ten Commandments begin, I am. If you miss the personalness of the prologue, then all the other commandments become inevitably impersonal. So what does this prologue teach us about the lawgiver? Well, it teaches us at least two things. And the first is this. The lawgiver is the creator God, the creator God. He begins, I am the Lord. Now, here's the thing about this introduction, this little phrase here. It's far more, it means far more than you can imagine. If you remember when we looked at Exodus 3, God shows up to Moses in a burning bush and he reveals his name. He says, I'm the Lord. I'm Yahweh. And you're kind of like, well, what does that even mean? And so God gives a description He says, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. And then he describes it by saying, what that means is, I am who I am. And basically, God was saying, my name reveals something of my nature. Who is this Lord, this Yahweh? He is God who is eternal, God who is unchanging, God who is self-existing. 
God is revealing himself to be the almighty author. He is the beginning and the end. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the one who was and is and is to come. And so when God begins and shows up and says, I am the Lord, we're learning this lawgiver to whom we're supposed to give obedience is the one by whom all things are made and have their being. Simply because of who God is, everything and everybody owes them their complete allegiance, their adoration, and their affections. In fact, because God is simply the Lord creator, he doesn't, he shouldn't have to demand your obedience. Simply because of who he is, he deserves your obedience. He deserves obedience from Israel. He deserves obedience from you. He deserves obedience from me. He deserves obedience from everybody who's walked his green earth. I mean, think about this. Imagine with me that you're a parent and you have a child. And in your household, you say, you know, we don't leave dirty laundry around. And so one Saturday, one, one, you know, one, one morning, you see that your child has left uh, their socks. They've just taken them off right in the living room. And you say, um, you know, can you please pick up your socks? And they say to you, uh, why should I pick up my socks? I don't want to pick up my socks. Well, what do you do? You shouldn't have to incentivize them. You shouldn't have to bribe them. Well, if you pick up your socks, you can miss school on Monday. If you pick up your socks, I'll let you do whatever you want and you can eat all the junk food in the world. No, you say something like, you need to pick up your socks because I'm asking you to. You pick up your socks because in the household, we don't leave socks on the floor. Now, what if they're bold? And they say, well, who are you to tell me to pick up my socks? And at that point, what do you do? And I think for a lot of parents, it triggers in you. A, a, a flip switches and you transform into something else. Who, who am I, buddy? <laughs> I made you. <laughs> I created you. You eat because I work. You sleep under my house. You live and move and have your being by my hand. Who am I? I am your creator and sustainer. <laughs> if you're a parent, you know that your kid shouldn't obey you because they're your child. They should obey you simply because they're your creation. That alone demands their obedience to you. How much more in the simple fact that God is the Lord, the creator of it all, should he demand and deserve that you obey him simply on the grounds of who he is? God could have given his law like this. I am the Lord. You shall. He could have said that. It would have been fair. It would have been more than fair. It would have been right. Simply because he is God and we are not. We obey God simply because he is creator. But God doesn't stop there. He reveals something else because he actually goes on to say, I am the Lord, your God, which reveals that he is actually our covenant God. He's not just the creator God, almighty and powerful. He's the covenant God. You see, when it says your God, he's using covenantal language, covenantal identity. And this is important because who is Israel? Israel is a people who's just been freed out of slavery in Egypt. And so God is saying, I'm different than the Egyptian Pharaoh. I'm different than the slave masters you would have been familiar with. God's saying, I'm not some authoritarian dictator who resides and inhabits heaven and just created you in order to enslave you and get you to do my every bidding. That's not who God is. 
Who is God to Israel? He is their God. He relates to them not with control, but with covenant. He relates to them not with power, but with promise. And when God binds himself to his people, he binds himself not with shackles, not with chains, but with an oath. You see, whereas Israel's or whereas Pharaoh's relationship to Israel was possessive, God's relationship to Israel is personal. Pharaoh related to Israel how? You're my slaves. God relates himself to Israel. I'm your God. And this changes everything. This relationship changes the way we view the rules. And I think some of you need to undergo this uh, radical reorientation of your understanding of the law. Before you think about what the laws are, oh, and how oppressive they are, how restricting they are, you need to think first about who is the God from whom these rules come? Who is the one who is giving the law? Because he's the kind of God who establishes relationship before he establishes rules. Listen, do you know that God is the first person in human history who ever DTR'd? Think about it. After he redeemed Israel, he saved them out of the land of Egypt. He shows up on a mountain. He calls Moses up and he says, all right, Moses, we need to DTR right now. What is this? But DTR does not mean to find the rules. It's to find the relationship. You were once slaves. I'm going to call you and you say, well, I'm going to define the rules now. This is how you serve me. No. He says, you were once slaves. Now let's define the relationship. I'm your covenant God. God says, I am your God. The emphasis is on who God is to Israel, not who Israel is to God. It's actually an offer of God to Israel. This is who I am to you. Why? Because God is everything. Israel is nothing. So God begins with the personal, I am yours. He doesn't begin with the possessive, you are mine. You are mine is the words of Pharaoh. That's the words of slavery. You are mine, do as I say. The words of our personal covenant God is, I'm your God. The God of the universe offers himself to his people before they ever offered him any obedience. You need to understand this relationship. We don't obey in order to get God. We obey because God has given himself. We don't obey in order to get God to like us and accept us. We obey because God already loves us. We don't obey in order to hope to be saved. We obey because God has already saved us. So actually he says in verse two, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God says, I've already redeemed you. I've already formed a relationship with you. This is the basis. This is the first button. And it means that obeying the rules doesn't get you a relationship. Obeying the rules doesn't get you redemption. You obey because God has already established a relationship. He's already redeemed you. Listen to this. A relationship with God is not a reward for rule keeping. Instead, Rule-keeping is a response to a relationship with God. This is something that Christians need to understand if they're going to live in any kind of freedom that comes from the gospel. You see, what's happening here in Exodus 20 and the way that God is giving his commands, first by telling him who he is and what he's done for them, that becomes the pattern of the gospel. It becomes the pattern of the way Christians are called to live our lives. Here's the pattern. What Christ has done for you first 
becomes the basis and the foundation. What Christ has done for you. What arises from that is what Christians do for Christ. In other words, the do of Christianity is grounded in the done of Christ. What you do for Jesus is in response to what he's done for you. You don't do for Jesus hoping that he'll see that, be impressed, like it, feel fuzzy feelings, and then reward you with something. You see, this very important pattern when you look at Exodus 20, don't skip to verse three, begin with verse two. God starts this way. I did this for you. I am the Lord. I saved you. Only after that, you should do for me. God says, I sought you in Egypt. I bought you out of slavery. I brought you into freedom. So now Israel, you ought to obey God. And that pattern becomes uh, the pattern that Christians base our lives on. The pattern of what God has done leading to then what we do. Because in the Exodus story, all of this is, uh, is giving these glimpses, snapshot of what's going to be fulfilled in Jesus. And the two greatest ones we've seen by this time in Exodus is first, how God saved Israel in the Passover by saying, if you sacrifice a Passover lamb, you smear his blood over the doorpost, then you will be saved. You won't die. And what God did for Israel points to what God did for us in Jesus. It's important when we take the Lord's Supper that we say this is like the fulfillment of a Passover meal, that Christ is the Passover lamb. His blood was smeared and shed so that you may have life. And the second great thing we see, we looked at last week in the crossing of the Red Sea. And we saw how as Israel's enemies went, as God's enemies went through the sea, water judgment fell upon them and how that points us to how we who are God's enemies should have had God's judgment fall upon us, but Christ stood in our place and he received the judgment for us. And so just as God sought Israel, so Christ sought you when you were running away. Just as God bought Israel out of their slavery, Christ has bought us, ransomed us and redeemed us. Just as God brought them out of Egypt, God has, Jesus has brought us out of our darkness into marvelous light. What is Jesus done? Jesus has sought us, bought us, brought us. So the next question is, what ought we to do? We obey the lawgiver because the lawgiver is the Savior. You see, you need to get this. The lawgiver doesn't bark commands from heaven to earth in order for you to earn his love. The lawgiver embarked from heaven to earth to come and love you. And from the lawgiver's hand comes every good blessing, grace, compassion, mercy, kindness. Then the law, which also comes from the lawgiver's hand, is for your good. You see, friends, at the end of the day, you will only ever love and receive God's law when you first realize that you are loved and received by the lawgiver. So we need to make sure we get that first button right. What God has done for you, the gospel, then what you do for God, obedience. That's the way of the Christian life. That's the pattern of the gospel. Who the lawgiver is, 
must come before what the laws given are. Let's pray.